On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Paul Price of Paul Component in Chico, California. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone, I talk to somebody in the frame building world, we chat for about an hour, and I try to help them tell their story of how they got started, how they navigated their sort of career, and uh, and got to where they are, how they learned what they've learned along the way, uh, the advice they have for other people. I like to talk about perspective and values and ideas, but I also like to talk about the nuts and bolts and process and, you know, nerdy machine stuff and whatever. Uh, this week, my guest is Paul Price of Paul Component Engineering. And so I think just about everybody knows about Paul Component. They make you know, CNC machined hubs and cranks and, uh, you know, stems and all these different parts that go on the bike. They're, they're in bike shops all over the country. They sell a lot of stuff. It's beautiful, but it's attainable and it's a little bit more accessible to your average Joe, maybe than uh, you know, a full blown custom bicycle. Uh, not everybody knows this, but Paul has created a handful of custom bikes over the years, and uh, he used to work at Mountain Goat Cycle, where he was, you know, involved in frame building processes. And so it's cool to talk to him some about those details on this show. Uh, but we mainly talk about his career in in making these parts. We talk about the hard lessons that he learned over the years in business. Something that I think is particularly interesting is the rear derailleur that they they did. It was sort of a it was a boom and bust thing for them over the course of a couple of years, and a lot, it came with a lot of hard lessons. And so I've seen pictures of this vintage mountain bike derailleur, and it's gorgeous, and it's really cool, and I think they're pretty collectible. But uh, it's it's cool to actually get the scoop from from Paul about how that started and and how it ended. So um, anyway, uh, wanted to get Paul on the show. Let's uh, let's just get right into it here. Well, I always knew that I was going to make things and sell them to people, and that's just always what I was going to do from a young age. I just, I guess I got lucky that way or cursed, depending. <laughs> but uh, I flunked out of engineering school right out of high school, uh, but eventually uh, got back in. I was pumping gas, and one of my former classmates drives in in a new Corvette, and then pumping his gas, and it dawned on me that there might be some other things I can do besides work on hot rods and chase girls. So I went back to college, went to Sacramento State, uh, got a mechanical engineering degree. And then, you know, after that, what you do is you uh, you try to shack up with your college girlfriend, which I did, and, you know, you get a real job. So I had I got a job right out of college, which was really nice, and in a, in a manufacturing place uh, as a tool engineer and uh and the girlfriend, I asked her to marry me, and she said yes, and all that, and, um, and buys the dress, and we're just about to send the invitations out, and she said, uh, she says no, she backed out. And I'm like, well, screw this up. Chico one time before to help a friend move out of, move their stuff out of a storage unit, and I really liked it. And um, so right then, I pretty much figured out I was going to move to Chico and do what I really wanted to do. I mean, 
we would have got married and it would have lasted, I'd be down there somewhere, probably in the Bay Area, doing something with, you know, in the computer industry, I'm sure. But uh, I was a bike guy, and I worked in bike shops all through college and high school, and uh, so bought a house, bought the cheapest house in Chico with a, a garage for $49,000, $49, but I had that garage, it was, a, it was like a shack, but it had a decent garage, and I bought a milling machine and a lathe and a drill press, and just started coming up every weekend. Got a roommate to help pay the mortgage, which was $253 a month, which uh, that was stressful sometimes, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then at one point, I, I just uh, I had to make the move. And so I got, I was in the Bay Area for a year and a half in a real job. And I moved and I got a job in Chico working for this company called Mountain Goat Cycles. Uh-huh. Which is one of the probably one of the unsung heroes of the originators of mountain biking. Mm-hmm. You know, it all goes to Moran, but but we had a couple people up here that were doing it, and uh, he was one of three people selling mountain bikes at the some nineteen eighty six inner bike or something when it was in it was in Reno back then. But he was an he was an originator, so I got a job working there for five bucks an hour. <laughs> Worked there eight hours, grinding fillets, and just, you know, getting covered in brass. And then I went home and worked for another, you know, five or six hours into the night trying to come up with some designs and a way to make them on my manual machinery. <laughs> yeah, so, but coming through his shop, he was pretty well-renowned in, uh, around uh, in Europe and Japan, and I met some... People that are still my customers from those days, um, and uh, eventually one of them made a big order for quick releases, which I had just figured out how to make. And um, and at that point, I I had to I was ma- I was one day I drilled all these vent holes in chainstays, and none of them lined up with where the chainstay bridge was supposed to go because uh, that's that's how he did it. It was internal. Yeah, blind hole or covered up. Yeah. Yeah, and and at that point, I think we both knew that I I needed to move on before screwing up, you know, another fifty chain stays for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then I uh, ran the business out of my house for for as long as possible, and that house got really disgusting. What yeah. was it like the uh, the accumulation of like coolant mist everywhere for like ten years or something or? Uh... Well, there was no coolant mist because there was it was all manual and we pretty much one of the machines might have had a coolant pump on it, but mostly it was uh, just drops of uh, transmission fluid and WD forty. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. So. So you had uh, this background in making stuff, liking bikes, working at Mountain Goat, and you had moved to Chico to sort of beat the rat race and maybe uh, have space to do your own thing. Do you remember when you first had the thought, like, I want to make my own brand of products that will bolt onto a bicycle and kick ass? Like, Or was it more of a vague idea to make things and you weren't sure what they were? Oh, no, that started in high school and... Um... Yeah, I had been designing bike parts since high school, and 
just from working in bike shops because mountain bikes had just started in uh, um, I lived they were you know they started over in Marin in, in the Bay Area and I lived over the hills in, in a place called Danville which back then was kind of a little town and we were pretty separated from uh, from all those hippies in Marin it was total suburbia but um, yeah always that's, I've made brakes I made I made a bunch of stuff, mod- always modifying bikes. And then, uh, the uh, yeah, so mountain bikes are coming out, and most of the parts just absolutely sucked. So, because everybody was cobbling together whatever they could find, and then the production bikes, I mean, there was, you know, they were taking touring parts and road bike parts and trying to adapt them. And, and so, they, yeah, they that, would use actually motorcycle brake levers, right? Yeah, I I still have a bike with motorcycle brake levers on it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, my gurus. And uh, yeah, so uh, I I mean I knew that was my plan in college to do that. And then once I started working, and you know the relationship didn't pan out, uh, which was that actually it was fine. It was good for both of us. Just want to say that um, both both worked out better. But. Uh, you know, I, I knew that's what I wanted to do before I um, moved up here. And I, I moved to Chico and bought that house with the idea of starting that business. Yeah. And uh, do you remember what some of the early projects were? You mentioned brake levers. Like when you developed a quick release, that was after you had your own shop space? Yeah, that was in my garage. First, I started working on brakes because the brakes were horrible. They didn't work very well. They were really hard to adjust. Yeah. Um, really hard to adjust in the, that whole eyeball thing. Yeah, and then those these brakes called Grafton's came out, and that was the bee's knees. And so, but but the first thing I did was oh yeah, this this company called Ringlay. Jeff Ringlay, he came out with a quick release. Which you know is external cam, just your basic toggle. It's like in, you know, it's what's in industry a lot. But uh, you know, I looked at that and I'm like, wait a minute, that's that's not a proper, that's not how Tulio Campagnolo would make it. <laughs> so I I developed an internal one, which was about ten thousand times harder to make and more complicated and. Uh, <laughs> But it had a bunch of anodized aluminum, and they worked really good. And uh, yeah, that's that's basically what got me off the got me off the ground. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting when you're starting a business. You know, you have to find some sort of entry point, and you have to find something that sticks. And it's not always clear what that's going to be. And um, Something I noticed with my own stuff was like the first couple product ideas I had, I had absolutely no idea how I might price them to be sustainable and to also sort of, there's like the internal side of pricing and then there's like, what does the public think and would they buy it or not buy it? And it's like, it's such a mystery. Like I imagine for you, especially before the internet, but like there was probably a trial by fire trying to learn how to run your business and, and like price things. And I imagine all that was learned mostly the hard way or did you have mentors and people who helped you a lot when you were getting started? Mm, no, I, I was always pretty shy and totally stressed out trying to make my mortgage payment. And, <laughs> um, 
So I am, and I am just, you know, real, I guess immature. I didn't reach out or talk to people much. I mean, I just figured I, if I, I knew everything or if I didn't, then I was going to figure it out. And, uh, yeah, pricing is always, always a challenge. Um, luckily for me, um, anodized aluminum bike parts was going crazy. So, uh, that, you know, people, the market was, was really wide open. So I got, it was a really good, the timing was really good. Yeah. There was, I, I don't know that era super well. I remember, you know, you see vintage mountain bikes with Kuka cranks and, and I think, uh, Cook Brothers was a company, right? There was a, a ton of companies that didn't survive yeah. that era uh, to see the light of day, you know, in the 2020. But uh, but you made it, which is, I think, incredible and, and worth celebrating in itself. Uh, but th- you're saying that th- this was a part of a larger trend that people were just really stoked on on putting these shiny parts on their bikes. Yeah, yeah, they, they were. And they were people had money to burn. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it, that, that worked out good. I mean, uh, there were a lot of really crappy parts sold at that time, which, um, uh, you know, people would buy it just some crazy idea. Just people would just buy them because they look cool and nobody <laughs> really knew if they worked or not. But, you know, like the, the buying public was like, yeah, somebody saw this. They must've figured out if it worked. Right. <laughs> well, usually not so much. Uh, including me. I, I mean, I had some dogs where I was like, oh, crap, I guess I should actually ride that. Uh-huh. You know, uh, but... Well, especially yeah, yeah, when you... If you're, like, the, the R&D lead time and the development curve on stuff is a lot shorter today because CAD software is so good and everybody has some sort of CNC, but back then, to even make a working prototype of something might be incredibly slow and when it becomes harder to iterate, then you're less likely to put in all that effort to get to an excellent iteration. So it stands yeah, to reason that it'd be right. easier to produce good stuff nowadays. Yeah. So what Definitely. was Definitely. what were some of the early products? I mean, you had the QR, you had the brakes. What was next? Well, the first one was the seat post quick release that just you know went through the seat collar, which usually was welded on the frame in those days. And uh, th- those were the first things I sold to a place called Cambria Bike Outfitters down on the California coast and quick releases. And then I finally came up with a decent brake design uh, called the Stoplights. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was something that I could tool up and make on manual machinery. And those took off. And, and those those sold really good. I mean, some parts I had to have other people make just just because it was out of my I just couldn't couldn't do it profitably. But uh, but uh, yeah, the the stoplights were did really good for us. And um, then uh, we did um, after that we did a song called the cross top, which had three different versions. There was a break where there was no uh, housing stuff on the, you know, on the fork or the seat collar. So, um, so with the, uh, seat stay bridge, mm-hmm. so the housing could run directly to the brake, which was kind of, which was novel back then. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, those, <laughs> they were impossible to set up. 
worked perfectly. I mean, it was really hard. And then as soon as they got dirty, they one tab was hit before the other. Oh no. Um, yeah. But, and this was. And then I did. I did do a V break. Um, I still have a couple. But the thing with the V break is uh, there was no levers, so you'd have to make a lever that was a long pull lever to make them really effective. And at that time, I had no way to make them levers. Uh, so. Yeah. So you started it in 1988. How long was it before you got any sort of CNC machines around? Uh, it was 89. And it was probably 94, 93 until we, I moved into a regular shop and, of course, waited like a year too long because, you know, being conservative, um, had like three employees in the living room with shipping and assembly. <laughs> I had a tumbler for tumbling parts in the closet of the bedroom, one of the bedrooms, but um, it would shake the whole house. So I cut a hole in the closet floor and it just sat on the ground in there. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, it was nuts. And the, oh man, the bathroom was horrible. Like nobody was allowed to go to my bedroom. That was like the one place nobody <laughs> could go. But, but finally I got a, I was a, I rented a place and, uh, yeah, then we got a, well, we had this sort of a C, it was pre-CNC, it was a pegboard machine, it was a lathe that was hydraulic, and you could put these pegs into this uh, square panel that had all these holes for different functions. Wow. And that thing actually, yeah, it, we had that working for about a year, but then, then it was, it just, you know, it just got to the point where we just had to buy a CNC. Yeah. And, yeah, and then... Then we had to figure out what to do with it and how to use it. And so, uh, you know, so luckily there's an engineering school here and, and uh, I met a pretty bright guy and he pretty much was in charge of making it work when we first <laughs> bought it. Yeah. When I mean, I, I didn't oh, no idea. When I talked to Mark Norstad from Paragon, he said one of his earlier jobs before he went on his own, they had a like a Bridgeport boss to CNC email and he maybe had used one or two others. And so years later, when he got his first machines, he had already done some of that work. But uh, you know, when you had done machining in high school or engineering school or whenever you had access to machines, you never really got your hands on the CNC process until you had machines in your own shop. Yeah, they, uh, when I was graduating, they were bringing in the first CNCs. I think I might have been the last person to graduate college and not have to own a computer, feels like. <laughs> so, and they've never, computers have never been my friends, so I never learned CNC stuff. But man, once I bought that machine, it was kind of like, oh, there's just no going back. Yeah. There's... It, they are amazing. But they're so do. amazing, yeah. Yeah, and even just, like, uh, you get so spoiled. You know, like, I loved to death my uh, Bridgeport manual mill. You know, it was the step pulley, one horsepower, J-head machine from 1967. I loved that machine to death. And after I had a CNC in my shop for a couple months with a tool changer and an enclosure and flood coolant, it was more rigid, it yeah. was faster, and just... 
it's so hard to be bothered to even make something for me. You know, you think you're going to have chips everywhere. You know, it's just, ugh, it's way too much work. <laughs> you get spoiled so yeah. quickly that the, the rigidity and the surface finish of everything. And it's, it's just night and day. Not to say that I don't like turning handles, but um, it's just, it's, it's a totally different experience. Uh, the one versus the other. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly, I, um, that machine during one of the bad times, uh, that, that first machine we bought, I ended up running it for a few years and I learned a lot and I did programming. Um, but it, it just, the whole thing has never quite sat well with me. I mean, right now, I'm learning a new. I'm learning SolidWorks because uh, we had to we had to finally move on from something we were using called uh, CAD Key or Key Creator. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it's just like I would I would personally I would rather be turning handles and standing in a pile of chips. <laughs> you know, you you can't make any money doing that. Yeah, yeah, I I, I love it, and yet. Um... I also love the the robots doing it for me. I, I kind of appreciate both. But it's funny how much there was a time where I worked in a machine shop and I had manual machines of my own and I worked around CNC machines. And I at first I was just like, ah, like I'll learn about these CNC machines, but I just, I'm never going to want to stop turning handles. And it, it's funny how my, my attitude toward it kind of shifted over time. But Yeah, uh, I've seen that with, with some of my couple guys that have been with me forever in there. They're, I let them use, I have a small shop with a bunch of manual stuff in it. Um, and I just have seen them be like, I think I'll just make it on CNC. <laughs> yeah. I'll wait till there's a changeover. We're going to change part. And yeah. it's going to be torn down and I'll just come in at night or something. But uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of, I see where, I see what you're talking about. I understand. Yeah. And you also have, in addition to the, the like the Paul production shop with some modern CNCs, I know you have, uh, you have a tour on your YouTube channel, I think, but you have a collection of, of beautiful old like Kernian trackers and shapers and different Bridgeport type machines, all sorts of manual machines uh, stuffed in this shop that looks really cool. Uh, I've never been there to see it myself, but I've seen the tour and, uh, and yeah, that's awesome. I would, I would love to have Someday I would love to have a bigger shop where I have, you know, CNC machines for production and then a frame building area and some old manual machines like that to support that work and, and other odd jobs because sometimes it's just the tool for the job and sometimes you just feel like, you know, just turning hand cranks and uh, and doing it like they did it, you know, pre-World War II. Yeah, right, yeah. I, uh, yeah, that's, well, that shop, there when I bought the building, there was a smaller building that was falling down and... So I kind of propped that up and reinforced it and uh, insulated it and put a new roof on it. And uh, I'm like, this is where the manual stuff is going. And, um, yeah, that was sort of a dream come true. I think I'm up to nine Kernian trekkers now. I have a little bit of a problem. <laughs> That's awesome. They come if they're for sale, not too far away, for like less than a thousand bucks, I will go buy it. That's awesome. Usually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, I think that's a good problem to have. <laughs> uh, but I do have three, I have four of them that I use regularly. So that are in that shop And uh, last night I used 
two of them at the same time. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that but, is excellent. Yeah, I make uh, that that shop. I make uh, like assembly tooling, um, display pieces, just uh, prototypes, crude prototypes to see if I can get a concept to work. Um, yeah, stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. So so you're uh, you know starting this company and you're building it up. You finally move out to a shop where there's some more room and you get a CNC machine. Uh, was, was the development and like the growth of Paul component over the years sort of linear or did it come in, in waves of like success and nearly getting wiped out? Or, um, I feel like I've heard you talk a little bit about that in, in, uh, maybe the video where you talked about the bike frame that you had built, uh, that you had a slow time or something, but, uh, you know, what yeah. was that like managing that? I mean, to stay in business for 30 years in the bike business I mean, that's hard for anyone to do. And I think, uh, yeah, to, to be celebrated, like how, what were, what were the struggles like? Oh man, the struggles were, were the struggles were real. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was, it was no, in no way was it linear. There was, um, in 94 and 95, I did a derailleur and, uh, I mean, that was kind of the height of American people were, Aeros the aerospace had dropped off and so all these Americans were like, Oh, let's make mountain bike parts. We know how to do that. We can make anything out of aluminum and anodize it. And um so I actually did the first American derailleur that worked and shipped and was in production. Um but that was like a that was like a rocket ship. I mean it was like a so much attention and so many people wanting it and this craze to, to, for people to buy it. I'm like, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I had no way to, I, I had made these prototypes. We had a, we had a Bridgeport copy CNC that made them. Um, that was, that machine was called the cookie monster <laughs> for, some, <laughs> for some reason. And uh, it, uh, like, I mean, I, I didn't know what I was doing and, and, uh, but it took a day in her bike and it was just like mayhem. And so then, you know, then it kind of went to my head and I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And, uh, and, uh, bought a bunch, but three more CNCs and we started making these things and they really weren't that good. They were really fragile and, you know, they didn't work that well. And then Shimano would go like from seven speed to eight speed and then nine speed. And, and, um, it was, it was, that was a, that was a hard road. And, uh, I mean, I did, there was a year that the company did really, really good, but then, um, there was this thing called XTR that Shimano invented that year. Uh, that was <laughs> 90, 96 or 97. Like they saw what we were doing and they're like, no. No, no, no. We all thought, well, oh, Shimano, you know, forget it, whatever. But they, Shimano just said, no, we, we just, we own this. And that XTR came out and suddenly nobody wanted American parts anymore. Yeah. When you started the parts that you could buy off the shelf and slap on a mountain bike, uh, left a lot to be desired. And there was a lot of room for someone like you to come in and do better. And over the years, the bigger companies, the Shimano's and, and, uh, SRAM and whoever started to really catch up and they had 
scale and they had development dollars from their probably their road product line and stuff to throw at it and it i imagine would be hard yeah. to compete on the small scale yeah there, there was just there was just no way um yeah. uh so yeah so then uh let's see we went from like 14 15 people down to uh man i think it was three or four Wow. Like within a year. Yeah. And I, I sold a bunch of stuff. Oh man, I had this vertical Kearney and tracker mill that was rebuilt and it was beautiful. And I just, I had to get rid of it. I let all that stuff go for pennies. Just, just, I just needed cash. Yeah. So, that's so um, hard. Yeah. And then it was like sort of back to the beginning where I was eating a lot of top ramen <laughs> and really skinny and, uh, but I wasn't going to get a job. I mean, I just, I just could not imagine it. And so I made it work. It was really stressful. I made so many mistakes. I hired a Canadian guy without even thinking about it. Yeah, that's America, right? Um, and then it was like, no, no, he can't work here. <laughs> he can't. No. I'm like, oh crap. So just, that's one of the many mistakes. And then, uh, I had to like, not make paint. I had to forfeit some machinery. It was it was a mess. It took a long time to get out of it, but but I just kept at it because I I love bikes. I love making stuff, and uh, and finally came around. And then this whole uh, single speed thing came along, and it was the hot ticket. And um, they kind of saved my ass. Those crazy kids. <laughs> and when when did that really start to like take hold and uh become a force that you participated in that you know affected your business? Yeah, that was the late the late 90s. Um and there was a there was a the this company called Ventana Mountain Bikes um who were still around uh doing mostly contract work these days in Sacramento. Um but they had a team, and these guys wanted to race single-speed mountain bikes. And they said, you should make us a hub that we can just put a BMX freewheel on. And and I'm like, are you insane? What What's what's wrong with you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, kind of the irony is I went from derailers to single-speeds. Uh, and then I got into it, and I did a bunch of single-speed racing. But I, I actually built the first made for mountain bike single speed hub that way wow and yeah um so that's kind of cool yeah and we that that product i mean it's evolved a lot but we're still selling the basic same one and just just rock solid yeah 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 and so uh you know when i got into cycling was 2009 and i became aware of your product line a couple years later and so i've seen a lot of you know historical products that you had made and and i've studied you know the timeline of paul some but i wasn't around through all that uh you know what i mean what what was going on between that single speed boom and into the two niners and like what were some other landmarks of of like change through that period to where we get to today with different products you launched and um and one thing I want to talk about is, you know, the sort of the 2008 recession uh, and whether or not that, you know, was a, a hardship for your business and some some other mm. points along the way. Yeah. Um, 
the uh, we were still we did breaks. I mean, we always were doing breaks, and at that point, we had gone to making brake levers, um, so we could do the whole. You know, we could make the brake levers match the brakes and the and the make sort of the package, and then uh, we did this thing called a kiss group, which was uh, keep up single speed, <laughs> two levers, two brakes, two hubs, um, and uh, so yeah, we we just kind of kept going like that, and then slowly I'm just thinking like, okay, I can't make anything that Shimano makes. You know, I mean, we were good on breaks. We were competing there, but I'm just thinking, like, what else? So then it was just, I did a lot of accessories. I did, like, a thing called the C-clamp that, that clamped a C-cell mag light on your handlebars, um, which burned through batteries, so I tend to find out. But, <laughs> uh, you know, and just a bunch of little stuff like that. And um, it, then we started doing the thummies. Uh, which take which are uh, take a bar end shifter or a down tube shifter, and then you can you can you can uh, use that on our mount on our thummy mount as a thumb shifter, and um, those did really really good. Those paid a lot of bills for a long time. Yeah, uh, I lo- I, and I just was like, I had no idea. <laughs> I love those though because they're they take such a, a simple. You know, it's like too stupid to break, and then it puts it right in a convenient spot. Uh, you know, what a brilliant idea! It's it's like it's so stupid that like why didn't anyone else think of that? You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, well, that's how all mountain bikes started. So, but uh, but yeah, they're just so simple and they're really precise. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I haven't used one in a couple of years, to tell you the truth. But uh, yeah, I, I yeah. think. Uh, uh, you know the the surly fat bikes and some others would ship with those at a certain era. You know yeah. that style of shifter, and I remember yeah. you know, riding on on other people's bikes and saying, "This is awesome!" Like I, I you know, this is what a sensible alternative uh, for for the right kind of bike. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of surly shipped with uh, bar end shifters for the drop bar bikes because they were so much cheaper than um, yeah, you know, combo shifters with the brake lever. And then people, you know, there's a lot of people who buy a drop bar bike and they're like, oh, my back hurts. I want to put a flat bar on there. And so they could basically just take the tape off and put new bars on and just use the same shifters with with a pair of thummies. Yeah. So, yeah, that that was really good. Um, Yeah, so the the company started growing again, which felt really good. And, uh, yeah, so we, we made it out of that mess. And um, and then the 2000s, uh, yeah, the 2008. You know, we it was sort of like the phone didn't ring for two months, but then it started ringing again. So we 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 weathered that all right. We did we did okay in there. We were we got back to the company got back to growing a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. Through the through the 2000s, we grew. We grew quite a bit. And, uh, yeah, that was that was great. Were there experiences you had with you know the growth you had when you were younger? Maybe I mean, would you say that you kind of grew too fast and it was not sustainable? Yeah, with the derailleur, I had no idea yeah. how to, and how that, to grow like that, and I just was just winging it, and I was too 
proud or stupid to <laughs> ask anybody else any advice. And uh, but um, yeah, I did start subscribing to the Wall Street Journal. I thought, okay, I got to learn about business, <laughs> and and I, I'm still subscribing to that, although it's not not what it used to be. So uh, were there lessons that, that you learned from that about how to maybe m- more um, cautiously tread into growth again when you had the, the product demand and stuff? You know, like if, you, if you're paying your bills and you have a lot of revenue, I imagine the, the banks are, are happy to extend credit. And, uh, and it seems like, oh, yeah, like, you know, for the cost of a machine payment and, uh, and another worker's pay, I could be doing all this extra business. And it's could be tempting in times of growth to grow a lot, but I'm also thinking that you probably some of those thoughts would be tempered based on your memory of how it had gone previously, and that you wanted to you know, go about it thoughtfully, right? Uh, yeah, I I was um, terrified. <laughs> I was I was like, you know, it was so stressful for a while there. Um, that I, that is that left an indelible mark in me, and and still sometimes like things are going things you know up until this thing that happened, but uh, things have been going good, and I, sometimes I feel like oh wait a minute now just you're just don't do that again, <laughs> you know I have to kind of calm myself down, but it it is nice to be so much smarter just from all the the mess ups that I've put myself through. So that, that, that does, that's one good thing about getting older. Yeah. 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 You, you inevitably you learn. Yeah. I mean, I'm i I'm relatively new and young to this and I, uh, if I make it 30 years with the business venture that I'm on, I'll be damn proud of that. So, uh, um, yeah, you should be, you're doing good though. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because yeah, for the listeners, if I didn't emphasize it in the intro, yeah, you're celebrating 30 years this year. That's a, that's a big milestone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, technically, it was 30 last year, but uh, yeah, but it's pretty. It feels pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm in a in a really good place in my life right now. So things are awesome. Get to ride a lot of bikes. That's great. And so, yeah. um, I want to talk some about. I know you made at least one bike frame so you worked at guru and you had your hands on frame building you've sold nice parts to i guess we should talk a little bit about the relationship you have with the handmade bike industry generally i know you know companies like yours and white industries and others will always be at the handmade bike shows because your components are handmade and because you know you you sell a lot to builders and um i think alec white had said it to me that you know it it's almost like a responsibility for some of these other companies to go to a show like nabs just so that there's enough momentum to the show that it works for small builders and um you know like i guess you know you've been in this sort of world for a long time and uh I guess we can just talk some about your relationship with that and, and the extent to which you built bikes. I know you made at least one. Yeah. I, well, I've made about 10. Okay. Um, yeah. When, uh, when things fell apart with, uh, with XTR and the derailleur debacle, um, I was like, okay, what can I do? What can I do? And, you know, I was, I was going to make, uh, I was going to like make door holes. I was going to make, fancy furniture it was like i was scrambling you know and so 
I thought, oh, well, you know, I have a torch here. I can, I got enough old milling machine tables and aluminum. I can figure out some kind of fixture. And so I did that. And, um, and it's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just last year, I hung up a bike I made during that, that I rode all the way through. So there is a, there's one bike that I actually rode a lot that turned out pretty good. It was a, it was a classic lugs steel, um, pretty skinny tire, uh, commuter bike. Um, but my, uh, the first bike I made, um, I took to inner bike, just sort of like, okay, this is going to be, I'm going to make, my dream was, okay, get everybody on bikes and we'll save the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so I was going to make what I called the Mercedes Benz of commuters. Like I thought there's just, there's gotta be this, this market for these. There's gotta be these rich people not going to ride a crappy bike. It's going to be totally uh, geared towards them. I had a rack that bolted to the frame, a front rack that bolted to the frame, um, which later became a product that we made called the flatbed, mm-hmm. uh, which, whew, man, I don't think we made $5 on all those flatbeds. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it had the fenders fit really good. The, everything was sort of integrated. It was sort of like, you know, let's just like approach the entire bike as a thing, um, as a unit and have it all work together, which wasn't being done then. But it seems, it seems ridiculous right now, but it was not being done. And, um, and I took it in bike and it was like this giant yawn, you know, it was like, nobody understood it. Nobody got it. Nobody cared. You know, it wasn't like a Chanelli. It wasn't a, it wasn't one of those newfangled, Kestrel carbon bikes, and uh, uh, so that was a huge disappointment. And and also, by the way, the um, fixture didn't get tightened down and moved, and that bike is basically unrideable <laughs> above <laughs> five miles an hour. Uh, so, yeah, and I used two thin of tubing, and it just starts shaking so bad it's hilarious. But um, <laughs> I took it to the show anyway. But now, like that approach to bikes is is everywhere and then sort of after that Rivendell started and they they sort of got into the same kind of thing so it was a little before its time but it, it was fun building a frame and so I, I had some tubing around and I started building I built a few more a couple are still hanging in the shop that never got done um, but it was a way to wait it was a way to waste so much time just, <laughs> just this did not really produce anything, but uh, but it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. One of these days, I might get back to it. I have all these horizontal mills now, so I thought that might happen someday. Yeah, yeah. Horizontal uh, mills uh, are so good for for dedicated setups, yeah. and yeah, it's a good thing to do with your uh, K and T addiction, probably. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah, that's perfect. Um, I'm not sure if I would try to make money at it though. I, the whole approach would be, you know, just let's, let's see if we can make some bikes that are fun to ride and not even think about selling them. Yeah. Um, which is really a, a nice luxury that I have. So that, that's really awesome. I mean, I totally appreciate that. I don't take that for granted, but, uh, but you know, frame building is, 
is is a kind of as you know a little bit of a rough road it's yeah uh, it's tough yeah when i talked to mark from paragon on the show he was talking about he was emphasizing the value and the satisfaction in doing frame building as a hobby and how part of what his business offers you know by by having the web store with you know no order minimums and and all these options and stuff is for the people who want to pursue frame building just for the fun of it, just for the satisfaction of making it your way and making something that you care about with your own hands as a really valuable hobby. And, and I think there's a, a lot of, that's a really good point. Cause for me, I, you know, I was young and I was looking to find kind of like you were a way to do something with my career that was satisfying that, you know, solved a problem for me. So, so I didn't have to work for other people. Right. But I, on the other hand, if you have a good job doing something else or or maybe if you don't, but like if you have the career component figured out or you don't want the stress and uncertainty of, of doing your own thing and working for yourself or whatever it might be, uh, to do it as a hobby is can be incredibly satisfying and it removes a lot of the, um, you know, you don't need to worry about whether or not it will sell. You don't need to worry about whether or not you can be profitable. You can just focus on the work and it really is a, a special thing uh, to do it that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen I've seen them some absolutely gorgeous bikes done by just people that are just doing it for a hobby and um and they you know, they realize like this is this is I just do this for the enjoyment. And um because man, building this bike, not many people are gonna gonna pay what it costs all the time I put into it. Yeah. So yeah, it's totally viable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing and, and art building is kind of like you can, you know, it's it's going to be expensive, but it's not out of reach. It's a yeah. thing people can do in their garage, and in the, you can get you know super basic with it and not have to spend a ton of money, and and you can build this thing that you can ride around town, which is kind of a miracle. It's amazing. I have on my YouTube channel a number of videos that talk about some of those aspects, you know, getting the shop started, like, you know, whether or not you can really build without a fixture. And I have one about my oxyacetylene torch setup. And, and I have some pointers in there about if you wanted to do oxypropane, because that makes it a little bit more accessible and easier and some like bench vice basics and hacksaws. And like, if you watch some of those videos, or you talk to anyone else who knows about it, it's really to get started at the minimum and make, you know, like a traditional braised steel bike is not out of reach for someone who has a space and a little bit of time. And uh, certainly the first couple bikes that I built, I really did not have much in the way of tooling at all. And they were slow and they would never have made me money. But like, I think they were pretty solid bikes compared to, you know, all the other stuff I've done with way more tooling. They're just, just as quality. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Good. Good. And uh, in college, uh, one summer I was living at home and I, I took a couple of bike frames and three or four bike frames and I cut them up and I, I hung them from the rafters in the garage so they were straight up and down and I welded tubes between them and I made a tandem. <laughs> yeah, so I guess that was sort of my first bike building thing. But, uh, but yeah, I actually rode that thing a little bit. Um, and then I needed money and I sold it to a guy who was really big and, uh, I'm pretty sure he bent it in half because he was not, <laughs> every time he saw me, he wasn't very happy, but, but, uh, yeah, yeah. So that, that was, that, this is like, it was rideable. 
That's awesome. I think there was on what Sheldon Brown's website. He had this this like sort of DIY instructions for like the simplest possible way to to build a tandem by grafting two diamonds together. <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Um, so I want to talk about, you know, I think in your, in your like uh, slogan or tagline and your marketing message, you talk about nice parts. I think that's written on your van and some other places. You have a really cool sprinter van. Yeah. Um, and I think that speaks to part of what you provide, which is that the parts are specifically like they are nice parts. Um, and things have changed between the late eighties and today. Uh, you know, like Taiwan produces amazingly good stuff at really low prices and, uh, and you can order stuff and it can ship right away and you can get it. And it's like pretty dang good for the price that you pay. Uh, but there's something special about the kind of stuff that you get from a company like yours. Uh, it's just, it's just beautiful to look at. There's maybe some mystique to it because it's, you know, it's, it's made by people that you can talk to. And, uh, there's, I don't know, it's just something special. I have a handful of parts that you've made some hubs and, uh, I've had a couple of your brake sets and they all perform freaking awesome. And they're just like, it just makes you feel good. Like there's, it's just like a good feeling that comes with it. There's something I think nice really gets to that. And so, you know, for frame builders and for people and like I make tools, right. But I use similar kinds of processes for people who make like a, a handmade or high end good. I think it's important to know the value that we provide our customers. And it's not only the utilitarian nuts and bolts function of it, but it's also like the feel that it gives you or like whatever. And so, I mean, I'm curious to talk to you some about like what it means in 2020 to make parts uh, that are nice. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for the compliment. Uh, and and I, before yeah, I forget, that's, that's, the brakes are, they truly are amazing to adjust. Uh, I, I, I for, failed to mention that earlier, but I've had a couple of your brake sets and like far and away, they're the easiest brakes and best brakes to adjust ever. And I have endless appreciation for that. Uh, even when I would ride through the salt in the winter and everything, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks. That, that design of the cantilever uh break it's it's really solid um and uh uh yeah that 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 was something i came up with a long time ago yeah but uh yeah yeah it's it's we work really hard to make a product that lasts forever um has a certain well i want to say it has a certain kind of look but it's some it's Mostly, it's just the way I design things. Like, uh, you know, this is what I wanted to do. This is how I want to be able to work on it. And this is, that dictates what it looks like. And so, a lot of times, the parts end up looking really cool uh, just because you can see that how it functions and how, um, you know, the thought that went into some of the little details. Um, we do very little sort of like, uh, you know, putting lipstick on them um, to make them look cool, um, very little. And um, so I think that over the years that has, that's come to, that's come to be one of the defining pieces of, of the product. And, uh, and I, think, I think people, you're right, people appreciate that. And, um, and when they're buying it, they, they actually get something of, of a lot of value. Yeah, and most of the parts never ever wear out. 
because uh, I missed that. Um, I missed that class in college. Oh, wait, I never took one business class ever. <laughs> but, but yeah, um, yeah, there is. And, and also, you know, we're easy to contact. Uh, people know that I'm a bike person, like, through and through. Uh, and and so a lot of the, the design work just comes from riding bikes, just purely just riding bikes, thinking about bikes, thinking about bike parts. Um, making prototypes, scrapping them, redoing them, adding this other thing, you know, and then having like being way out on this ride and just totally zoned out and then this light bulb comes on, you know, and it's just like, oh my God, I just solved this problem. I'm so happy now. Those are, those are really good. Those are fantastic moments. And usually it's like, I'm just completely, you know, it's, uh, you just like you're just on a bike sometimes, and all of a sudden you look up and you're like, "Oh, it's an hour later." You didn't even, you know, you didn't. You just been like in the zone. So that that's a beautiful thing. But but I think people people appreciate that, and and a lot of the parts that come from Taiwan, still, I mean, let's face it, they're mostly copies of some other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my company. Somehow my brain has been able to come up with just all 100% original, original parts. So, uh, you know, that, that has a good reputation right there and that, that has value. So, yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that the customers get it, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's just, uh, I, sometimes it's like, wow, this is so much money to spend on this custom high-end handmade bike or on these parts or something and uh i always have to like realize how much i'm just such a cheapskate because if you compare the 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 money that you can spend on a on a hobby or an activity like cycling against like so many other things you know like people tune in their cars or uh you know travels expenses like everything's expensive uh to be able to buy really nicely made stuff that feels good and works good and looks good and that you can have you know a relationship with the people who made it uh is really something special and it's it's really uh actually i think quite affordable i've realized over the years and um yeah Nice yeah. to have. Well, I don't, you know, and people, people deserve a treat. You know, everybody works really hard. Or, you know, a lot of people do, and uh, and <laughs> and they want to buy something special for themselves. And you know, and there's there's that idea of like uh, you buy once, yeah, and and you're good to go. And that part, that thing that you bought forever, you're going to be able to. 100% rely on it. I mean, I, I love that. Instead of like, oh, it's cheap, it'll break, cheap it breaks, cheap it breaks, you know. Mm-hmm. Just in, in everybody's life, there needs to be a couple things, I think, that that you just get that you can totally rely on. Um, yeah, and, uh, what, I, what we like to say is with, uh, with our parts, you cry once and then it's all smiles. <laughs> but, or you could go, you know, you got a super cheap route and it's all, it's smile and then you're just crying because yeah. it, it, it just, it's just not the same. So, you know, and whatever, whatever your budget fits you, but, but, uh, just for, for people to realize like all this stuff, there is just so much stuff. Like I have a couple things 
that you don't need to replace every year that you, that will just be there. Yeah. So I've, that's that's a that's a huge thing I like try to do with my life. Yeah, and I think uh, what I, I've heard a lot of people say, uh, allegedly, there's there's a case for this amongst psychology uh, or whatever, but um, that that we're more motivated to avoid failure and regret than we are to seek out success and good decisions or something, right? Like, I feel like I've heard that sentiment quite a bit. And that makes sense uh, that a lot of times when we're purchasing something or when we're making a decision about something, we're more concerned about what will happen if we get it wrong than we are, like, trying to make sure we get it right. And so I think when you've been burned a couple times and you bought something and it sucked and it failed you at the wrong time or it wasn't that much, you know, like maybe you, f- you fixed, you did some repair on your car and you bought the cheap, you know, whatever part. And now it's like buried inside of your engine and it failed again and you're leaking coolant or something. And it's just like, I got to do this two hour yeah. repair again because I was afraid to spend an extra $7. And I think when we think about the frustration that comes with those moments, uh, it can be pretty compelling to say, screw it. Like I'm not going the cheap route again. Uh, and there's something yeah. to be said for just being able to count on stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, and my dad uh, was a cheapskate and, uh, we're slowly cleaning the house up at the, the, the sort of the family home and there are cordless drills. There's got to be 20 of them. <laughs> You know, he would just buy the cheapest one, and um, it's just, it's, it's just like, no, Dad, buy the good one. Buy, yeah. Just buy one. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. And Dave worked for a while, but then, you know, when he really needed it, it would, it would just, he would conk out. So, yeah, yeah, that can be, that can be frustrating. I could never. He was raised during the depression, so I kind of understood it. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about this moment we're in right now. Uh, we have, you know, sort of this global pandemic and it's a, it's a highly uncertain time for a lot of people. I mean, I think everyone knows someone who's, uh, at a higher risk of, of, uh, you know, not doing well with the, the virus if they contract it. Uh, it's a scary time economically. You know, a lot of people are out of work temporarily. We don't know how long the economy is slowing down. And so, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's a very different time that we're in. I know uh, Paul Component is running on a little bit of a different uh, a sort of operation this week, right? Like you've had to close production. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a stressful yeah, few days, honestly. It's been really, really stressful. Um, last Thursday was an absolutely gorgeous day here. And I said, okay, everybody, like, I don't know what's going to happen. You just take a couple of days off. You'll get paid for those. And, um, and I went up to our park you know, with a friend, and we hiked around and saw beautiful stuff and laid under oak trees and uh, totally forgot about everything. And then, uh, then we got back, and the governor had issued the stay-at-home uh, order or recommendation, whatever you want to call it. And, um, so yesterday I had everybody come to work and I said, okay, 
everybody go to the unemployment office. Like, and that that really hurt. I had the. I just don't have the resources to keep them on payroll. It's just like the bike industry just isn't that lucrative, and uh, and that hurts because all these people like they have. We all are together. We're all making the stuff. We're all giving each other employment by what we do at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and uh, and everybody, most of them are bike people, and and they like the job, and they get treated well, and there's health benefits and retirement and, and good stuff like that. Like it's it's a they're decent jobs, um, which I'm very proud of. But so to tell them like. You know, everybody's going on unemployment except for um, basically three people, and I'm not sure how long they're going to they're going to hang on. But uh, we're down to we we um, several years ago uh, we started doing these uh, January. We would just go somewhere else and have a meeting with everybody and just like shoot the shit, spitball, and just figure out okay, what are we going to do this year? Um, in the years past, we have been chronically low on uh, inventory. And one year we decided, okay, we have to have inventory. We have to be ready. Spring is coming. Um, and so we've been doing that. And this year we have we have a really good stock of parts. So just to help with some cash flow, um, we have uh, two people in the office and one person at home. And the, the two people in the office are staggering so they will be separated by 48 hours. Um, we just we just all decided like we're just going to go super conservative. Um, so you know the idea is like the virus will die if one of us has it that goes in. And I'm actually not allowed in the office at this point. I, I just go in my manual shop and uh, and then we have a little area for working on bikes. But um, yeah, it's it's. It's rough. It's yeah. rough. Uh, but luckily, we have some stuff to sell, so I was able to keep a couple people on some payroll. But it's week to week, you know. It's week to week. We'll see. Um, I'm hoping it peaks in April and we can get back to work. Yeah, yeah. It's it. I'm like alternatively like really uh, <laughs> freaked out, and then and then other times I'm like really optimistic. It seems like we have almost the whole of the world thinking about the same problem at the same time and to a large degree there's a there's a common goal or a common interest in uh solving the problem collectively so that we can get back to work while maintaining the health and safety of people and i feel like usually with the big problems we face as societies or in the world there's a conflict of interest that the people who have the most power are less invested in making changes or something and so that makes me a little bit optimistic to think that when there are good ideas and when there are uh, solutions that they will be funded and they will have resources and we will move on them quickly and, uh, you know, we put a man on the moon, et cetera. But, uh, but then you see some of the, you know, <laughs> some of the people in power uh, maybe not doing everything you would like them to do. So it's, it's, it's really it's early and it's hard to say. And I think uh, it's, it's difficult, too, because, you know, everybody would like to, to – to have a little more certainty to at least know what we can expect. And I don't know if anyone can, can do that for you. You know, there's like, there's, there's not yeah. really an answer right now for what it's going to look like. And so it's, it's, uh, yeah. 
you take comfort in the fact that everybody else is going through basically the same experience you are and that you can at least call them up on the phone and talk to them. But, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's kind of a stressful and, and alarming time, uh, for everybody. Yeah, it is. It is. And just, um, you know, the whole term, like for the good of the people, I, I, I don't think that's really in effect anymore. I feel like, uh, um, we had a golden age after the depression and after world war two, like everybody was sort of like, okay, yeah, that was bad. We're not going to do that again. We're all going to pitch in. We're going to help each other out. You know, I'm rich. I'll get taxed more. I'm poor. I'll have some, I'll have some level of being taken care of. Um, but I think all that's forgotten at this point, And it's sort of just, uh, it's, it's just, you know, let's destroy the earth and make as money as much money as possible right now. Which, yeah, that in the bigger picture, that that's my personal opinion, and, and that that just that bums me out. If I start really thinking about it much, so I usually go on a bike ride. But <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hoping like this is bigger than all of that, and everybody will realize. Like, yeah, you know, we this is something we gotta like together here yeah that's that when i'm more hopeful that's what i think of is just that like uh it it is a problem that requires sort of a common solution or i think it does i like to think that it does i like to think that we can't just turn our back on the healthcare workers and the individuals who will be at highest risk or something you know that seems like a non a non-answer that seems like uh unconscionable and um and I'd like to think that if we if we all have the common interest of solving the problem the same way, then then there will be a solidarity and there will be like a a, a rapid response or something. But uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I, I've been really interested to you know the thought that like some of these things that need to be produced in this time, specifically medical components and ventilators and things, there are factories and and uh, machine shops and things that have talked about retooling to produce different parts and man wouldn't that be cool to rather than sitting on your hands and waiting it out hoping that those in power do the right things to actually get your hands dirty doing something that can help save lives and move the you know move the needle in the right direction and uh and i don't know exactly how to coordinate that yet i see uh industry nine was talking about uh some of that i don't know how far they've gotten with that effort but yeah yeah they're um well you know i mean the other thing is we just want work, you know, because yeah. people want work. So that's, uh, that's a, that's a thing. And, and industry nine, that's, um, their parent company or literally parent, um, in, has a fully established giant machine shop and I've got a tour and it's freaking awesome. Um, and I forget the guy's name, super nice guy. Um, what is his name that owns industry now? I can't remember. But uh, yeah, so they have they and that a lot of that business, you know, is is purely uh, subcontracting. So, but but as far as us goes, we're uh, we're gonna you know we're gonna try to hold out as long as possible doing doing what we're doing. I mean, if if we had uh, you know if some people reached out and some machine shops and I'd probably respond for sure. But, uh, at this point, trying to dig up some business doing, doing those is, uh, 
Well, we'll see how that goes. I hope it doesn't come to that. Yeah. Yeah. But it is needed. I agree. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, uh, maybe we can end on a little bit more of a positive note. What, uh, you know, like what kinds of, <laughs> what kinds of, uh, product ideas have you been, uh, is there, is there any, any teasers you want to give out for anything you've been working on or things that you would hope to release? Uh, you know, not <laughs> maybe the pandemic slows that down a little bit. Uh, uh, what you know? Yeah. I, I, you guys have released a lot of stuff in the time that I've been following you. Between the, the uh, what was it? The the mini moto, I think, and the uh, the boxcar stem, the seat post. There's been a lot of things that have come out in the last five ten years. Uh, is there anything yeah. new that you wanna you wanna speak to? Yeah, we're always um, there's usually four or five solid things that we're working on and then another five are like, no, oh, what if we, what about this, you know, and then maybe tinker around a little bit, but, but right now there's a thing that we're doing that I can't talk about, but, um, I'm super excited about, and we were hoping to have it out this summer, but, uh, not, not positive that's going to happen. Um, but there's, yeah, we have a, in the, in the shop, there's what we call the big board, which is a, Big dry erase board with like uh, 10 or 12 slots and then different steps uh, horizontally of, of, uh, of what to do. So each, each slot on the left will be a, a new product and then like there's steps that we're taking to try to get it to market. Um, but my one of my biggest mistakes back in the old days was introducing stuff before it was really figured out or I had packaging or even new pricing and um, and I still have a tendency to do that but I have a an awesome marketing person Travis California Travis mm-hmm. and uh, he would get really mad at me if I said anything and I don't want to get in trouble with him <laughs> well all right uh, fair yeah. enough it's, it's super fun super fun working on new stuff everybody everybody likes to do it yeah so Something I noticed with my own products last year, I released a new tool, and when I did, I got you know a little small little wave of sales of the new product for people who said, "Oh, that's just what I need," or "Oh, a cool new thing." And it also it definitely helped me sell some of the other stuff that was already there. You could order it any day of the week, but when I put it on yeah. sale, people say, "Oh yeah, throw one of those other things in with the new order." Yeah. And so uh, you know you you don't want to just release stuff just for the hell of it. You want it to be good. You want it to be ready. You want it to be appropriate. Uh, but there's, I think there's, yeah. a, there's a lot to be said for new products really help move stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then like t-shirts and stuff. So you're talking about, are you talking about the tube bender or the, uh, the Brazon clamp? When I made the miter daddy, I had the tube bender, the braze clamps and the miter buddy and the bottle opener were things you could buy in my, my web store. And so I sold like, 20 miter daddies or whatever in the first week or something. And I started on the second batch, but I, I probably sold another, you know, uh, 10 or so orders of other stuff that I wouldn't have sold otherwise. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah. T-shirts, bottle openers. Yeah. You know, that stuff helps. And, but yeah, at this, at this point in my career, like I, I, we have to test the crap out of stuff because we have to be like it, to our reputation is like we cannot risk it. So we we test and ride and I have a 
my biggest Perineum tracker is it's now just a dedicated testing machine that just runs stuff through like, you know, a million cycles of a, you know, just stressing it. And, um, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. But, uh, all that's fun and it does help. And, and, you know, we all, we all want to have something to think about. So keep, keep your brain going. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, I mean, for me, like when I release a product and then it's selling, then like I need to sell more of it or, you know, to offset the design time and the fixturing and all that stuff. And I need to keep money coming in every month. But once you're just repeat producing the same thing over and over again, it pretty quickly just feels like work. And, you know, the whole reason that you start your own thing is so you don't have to work, right? So, uh, you know, if you're not making a new fixture to better hold the parts, or if you're not fixing a small issue with it, with a revision, or if you're not making some, some of the, some of the changes are just on the, you know, the marketing and the business side and customer service side and packaging, but like, it's those new challenges that keep it fun and interesting. And if you're not, if you're not putting your brain on any of that stuff, then you're just a you know you're just a machine operator and that i've done that i've gotten paid to do that it is not that much fun i i wouldn't i wouldn't do that again you know so i i'll do it in addition to everything else uh it pays good enough and and it's you know it's not terrible work but i want to be doing the the stuff that lights up that little light bulb inside of my brain and the stuff that i can learn from and and I, i really love when i can bring something new into the world that didn't really exist before it solved a new problem or it's a new angle on it or something it's just the most satisfying thing it is it is i'm i'm excited to see what your uh the entirety of the frame fixture what you've got going on there <laughs> yeah it'll be cool it's uh you know i don't know how i want to bill it exactly but i think i'm trying to think of it from like a sustainability and manufacturability standpoint that i want it to function incredibly well and i want it to be something that's made in a way that makes sense to build something like that so that it's um there's a lot of different ways people have made these things and they're, they're all good in their own ways. And some of them are excellent. And, uh, and I want mine to be something that from a manufacturing standpoint, it's like, this makes sense to build it this way out of these kinds of materials, uh, and assembled in this fashion so that it's not in unnecessarily resource intensive on some detail of it that doesn't provide the end user that much value. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. But, uh, all right. Well, anyway, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show. Uh, yeah, I always love the stuff that you have. I love the way that it works. I think it's uh, it's you're a model of, of what it takes to survive 30 years in the industry. And so I always ah. look up to what you're doing right. and try and learn, try and learn lessons from the things you shared today. So um, uh, I wish you oh. and everyone else, uh, you know, luck persevering, weathering the storm of this, uh, both in terms of, you know, the health of the people we love and, and also, you know, economically, cause, uh, it's, it's probably going to slow down for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for those thoughts and, uh, we're going to make it, we're going to do it. Yep. It's going to be fine. Also, uh, summer's on the way, which is always nice. So Hell yeah, yeah. But yeah, thanks for the call. Thanks for the call, Joe. And, and you take care too. Yep. See ya. Bye. Bye.